good to see everyone here this morning. And we are in week two. Is this working? Can you guys hear me? Cool. All right. We are in week two of our birthright series. So last week we spoke about Esau's birthright. We spoke about how um, the birthright is actually part of the blessing of God. So who remembers that? Who is here? And we talked about how the blessing of God is double-edged. Who can remember the two edges? Oh, sorry, we had no one listening last week. <laughs> Great. Thanks, everyone. There is, yes, there's a personal ability to flourish, and then there is enabling and leading others to flourish. Yeah? So the blessing of God is not individualistic. It's not for you to feel great. You know, I was watching something this week, and, um, and this person said, you know what, I'm so blessed because I have great genes, and so I've got, like, great metabolism. And I'm like, that's not the full blessing. You having great metabolism or having a great carp- no, carping spot, parking spot <laughs> is not the fullness of the blessing. You are missing out on the fullness of the blessing if you don't also take how God is causing you to flourish and to lead others into flourishing. We need both. We need both that God's hand is on our lives and that we are leading others into flourishing as well. And so uh, from there, we discuss that every Christian has the birthright of God, which is the authority to lead others into flourishing. And we saw that in Hebrews chapter 12, 22 to 23, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. God calls every Christian a firstborn, which then naturally means that he's all given us a birthright. Now, let's not get too mathematical about this, because the birthright means that you're supposed to get a double portion. If everyone gets a double portion, then who gets a double portion? I don't know. But the whole point is that every person is blessed by God to flourish and to cause others to flourish. We are all firstborns in the kingdom of God. Now, I wanted to dive a bit more into that today because this whole idea that we are all firstborns, it's not a very common thought, right? I don't know if I've ever heard anyone ever preach on this whole concept that we are all firstborns. I think we rather hear, or we hear lots of messages about how Jesus is the firstborn, and that is accurate. That is definitely what the Bible says. Jesus is the firstborn, but we are also all firstborns, and I'm going to show you why that is the case today. And we are going to have to do that by doing a bit of a Bible history lesson. You guys ready? We're going to do lots of scripture. Um, So take note of all the different scriptures, or you can just do a Bible search at home as well. And um, hopefully you will see uh, this pattern that I have been seeing and that God has put on my heart. Let me also just say that what I think that I'll be speaking on today is less about just giving you some Bible knowledge, even though I think that it's very cool. I love Bible knowledge, but really... I think God has put a prophetic word on my heart in that He wants to declare something for us to catch a hold of today, now. This is not something that is just like, oh great, another principle for my life. This is a catch a hold of this because God needs us to respond today. 
All right, I don't say it as often. Have you guys been a part of live? You know, I just I don't just throw that out and go, whoa, let's respond to this, let's respond to that. I always want us to respond, but that sense that there's a certain urgency because I think that we get to partner with what God is doing in this very season, and this is why this message has been on my heart. So, ready to go? I think I want to pray first. Let's just pray. Let's take this moment. God, I pray that you open our hearts to understand why you have called us firstborns. Let us understand um, the responsibility. Let us understand what you are saying to us now. Place an urgency in our soul about the things that you are wanting to do so that, God, that we would put aside the things of this world that so easily entangle and that we can hold on to what is truth and what you are leading us into. And so, God, I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. All right, so Bible history lesson. Why does God call us the assembly of the firstborn? Well, I think that this comes from a reference to the tribe of Levi. So Israel has 12 tribes, right? We all know that. Or well, if you've been around church long enough, you know that tribes, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And then um, God specifically says about the clan or the tribe of Levi in Numbers 3, 11 to 13, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine for all the Levites, uh, sorry, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So this is a part of God um, actually giving instruction to the Israelites about the idea of the redemption of the firstborn. What God was saying is that when he led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, how did he do so? Through the 10 plagues. The final plague is known as the plague of the firstborn, where God sent his death angel, um, and the death angel came and visited every household. But if the household was covered by the blood of a lamb, which is a foreshadowing, this is a, a something that is telling us about what God is going to do through Jesus later, the blood of the lamb. If they were not covered by the blood of the lamb, the angel would go into the house and the firstborn would die. So that was the plague of the firstborn. We can discuss the ethics of that another time, just saying that this is what happened. And then through that, uh, the Israelites were allowed to leave Egypt. Now, God now, in Numbers chapter 3, looks back at that account and says, when I killed all those firstborn, I was actually saying all the firstborn of Israel are now mine. And the way that he speaks about it is that the first living being that opens the womb belongs to me. It is a blessing from God that wombs are able to open and to bear life. And so he says, because it's my blessing, I claim that as my right. The next kids, all yours. The first kids, mine. This also actually uh, related to all the animals. If you have a firstborn cow, that firstborn cow actually belongs to God. That is what the Israelites were told. God was very jealous about the firstborn. The firstborn is his. However, instead of having first born amongst all the Israelites across all the land, what God then says, rather than having randoms scattered across the nation, he says the tribe of Levi are now the firstborn representatives. The 
the assembly of the firstborn in the Old Testament are the Levites. Hearing so far? Pin dropping? Rather than having all these firstborn, God says, I've redeemed all the firstborn through the tribe of Levi. So when we are trying to understand what the assembly of the firstborn is, we need to understand the tribe of Levi and what the tribe of Levi did. Make sense? Clicking so far? All right, now it's probably not that exciting until you understand what the tribe of Levi um, are all about. Now, the tribe of Levi were taken uh, in, in Numbers chapter 3 to be God's own, his, his particular redeemed assembly, and then they were tasked with the things of God. The tribe of Levi were tasked with the things of God. And that is what we are tasked with today. Why the author of Hebrews talks about uh, the assembly of the firstborn linking back to the Levites is because today we are the modern day Levites. And we have been, the ta- we have been tasked with the things of God. We need to understand um, uh, that this is our responsibility. The birthright that we now have, the birthright of the Levites, is now our birthright, and this demonstrates what we are meant to be doing with our lives. So why did God specifically have um, the Levites? What did He want with them, and what was their role? When we say that they have charge of the things of God, practically speaking, they were actually uh, setting up and packing down and moving the literal tabernacle of God where God's presence was represented. And then Finally, when they get, came to this place that they were supposed to go to the promised land, I know there's a lot of historical facts. Some people are like loving this. Some people are like, get to the point, right? <laughs> we'll get there. As they were about to enter the promised land, all the tribes of Israel were given an allotment. So the tribe of Dan was over there. The tribe of Judah was over here. And all of them got an allotment. But then God then says to the Levites, you guys don't get an allotment. You get scattered across the whole nation. You get towns all across the land of Israel. He took his firstborn tribe, and then he scatters them so that there's a purpose for this. And I want to go back to Exodus 19, 5 to 6, and it says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all people. This is the nation of Israel, by the way. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God's intention for Israel, and you will read this in the New Testament as well, is that the whole nation is a kingdom of priests. They are meant to be people that represent God to the nations. There's a lot of play at stuff here. Israel is actually also the firstborn. And as the firstborn, they are meant to be the priests, a kingdom of priests, so that the whole world will know who God is and be blessed by that. And so within that firstborn, there's also another firstborn, which is the Levites. And the Levites were scattered. I think it's because God wanted the Levites who had studied and worked under him to be able to spread the kingdom culture across the whole nation. 
There was this concept that we came up with. I don't think it was that ori original. I think many youth groups did this, but when Beck and I were youth pastors, one of the things we noticed on a Friday night when we had youth, um, our youth service is that all the youth leaders were clumped together and they were, you know, band together as though um, the teenagers were about to uh, overwhelm them. <laughs> and so... It was sometimes quite scary those nights, and so the, the youth leaders would band together, and then the youth would band over here. What do you think happens when that happens? It's chaos. You know, they, they don't know how to worship. They've never been in the presence of God, some of them. They don't know how to respond to the Word. They don't know how to even sit still. That concept was foreign to these teenagers. And so uh, as youth pastors, we came up with this phrase. I don't even know if we came up with it, but I'm claiming it. We called it scatter no chatter because it rhymed. And so what the youth team would do, these guys are the Christians. These guys are the ones who have encountered God. These are the ones who know who God is and have this relationship with God and desire to grow in their relationship with God. So we took them and we said, you are not allowed to stay together. You need to scatter so that there is one of you amongst the teenagers at all times. And so what we noticed when we did that is that the teenagers couldn't clump together and start their own conversations during worship. Rather, they were looking at the youth leader who tended to be taller and bigger. Zach was one of them. And so you, we were like, Zach, we are placing you where the worst lot of kids are so that everyone can see you worship, can see how you worship. And from there, we're using that model, can learn from it and worship yourselves. We scattered them amongst the people so that when the preaching was going forth, they would not be just kind of clumping together. They would have a leader telling them to shush and say, Amen, yes, God, responding to the word. And I also believe that there was a presence. There is an anointing that these leaders had so that wherever they stepped, there should be peace. I think that when God scattered the Levites across the nation, it wasn't just so that they would... I, don't, I think it was so that the culture of the kingdom would spread. And one of the things that was really interesting that I found is that the Levites were even uh, brought in as judges for the nation. In Deuteronomy 17 verses 9 to 10, it says, And you shall come to the Levitical priests, and, and you will find in the Bible that Levitical or Levites and priests are very much linked because they're actually from the same tribe. All right, so they come to the Levitical priest and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. The Levites were leaders without necessarily being called leaders. They were leaders in the nation of Israel, God set it up so that people would need to go to them, would need to learn from them, would need to see the model that they were setting because the Levites were the ones who were charged with the things of God. That's what was happening there. And so later, as we keep reading through the Old Testament, we get through uh, the book of Judges and then First and Second Samuel and then First and Second Kings, and you will notice this pattern that when the Levites are doing well, the people of God are doing well. When the Levites aren't doing well, the people of God aren't doing well. And then we hit uh, two books, which are called First and Second Chronicles. Now, First and Second Chronicles, if you don't know the history of it, they are really boring books. 
terrible books. It starts out by talking about how people are divided into different uh, responsibilities and all of that. And then it kind of repeats everything in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, except edited so it's a bit shorter. I'm like, what is going on? Well, First and Second Chronicles was written after after Israel had already gone to exile. At the end of 2 Kings, Israel had gone into exile, and then they had all these issues and all that kind of stuff. When they were allowed back into Israel, that's when First and Second Chronicles was written, and it was written to teach the people of Israel how to worship. And so you will find so many instances of the Levites being mentioned in 1st and 2nd Chronicles, even more than in all the previous books that I mentioned. Why? Because the Levites were charged with the things of God. And so I want to run you through some examples because I think you will start to see a pattern that I'm hoping will stir in us as today's Levites. First and foremost, I want to point out in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 2, David, who is the most amazing king of Israel, as according to uh, uh, Israel's uh, records, he wanted to bring God's presence in. Now, David is called later a man after God's own heart. He obviously has a relationship with God. However, when he tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem where he was reigning, he didn't do it according to God's ways and someone died because of it. So now he wants to bring the, the Ark of the Covenant in again. And in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 2, this is what it says. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the Ark of God, which represents God's presence, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the Ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. This is the king saying that even I am not allowed to touch the ark of God. I'm not allowed to touch it. This is the forever responsibility of the Levites. We need to catch a hold of, of how important that is that as modern day Levites that we carry the presence of God. It doesn't matter whether we've got a Christian prime minister, a Christian president, or whatever it is, or even a pro-church leader of our nation. We, as the assembly of the firstborn, we carry the presence of God. That's what this is saying. And then in 1 Chronicles 16, once they got um, uh, the, the ark on the way to Israel, uh, into Jerusalem, sorry, David then goes into this really like elaborate thing where now because the ark of God is settled in one place, the Levites, their old responsibilities were no longer needed, so he created new responsibilities for them. What was one of the main responsibilities that is harped on again and again in Chronicles, worship. These guys who used to carry the presence of God are now ministering to God's presence 24-7 in worship. 24-7, there were hundreds of musos and singers that were tasked with being on roster so that they could worship God at all times. And this is the book that was written to teach Israel how to worship. I wonder what it's like if the church, the modern-day church, understood, if every Christian understood that I'm on roster to worship God. 
that I'm on roster to bring praises to God. And not just alone, but together in teams so that we can lead the whole nation into worship. This is what the Levites did. They worshiped God and were ministering to God forever. And then we jump ahead to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, and now David's son Solomon had just finished building the temple, and he wants to bring in the ark of God into the temple. Now, once again, we read that, uh, um, that Solomon says that he needs the Levites to carry the ark of God into the temple. Once again, the king's not allowed to touch it. It is what God has delegated. Isn't it interesting that God delegated His presence to just normal people? Isn't it great that God didn't delegate His presence to the most prestigious, the most well-known, the most rich, the most eloquent, the most intelligent? It was just a tribe of people. These Levites often didn't even have a name written in the Bible. So let's get the Levites to do stuff. Why? Because I think that's the picture of what God wants us to catch. This church shouldn't have Nate carrying the presence of God alone. No. If anything, if I look at the Word of God, it is the church carrying the presence of God that is far more important than me carrying it alone. Would I rather be taking a back seat so that God can do what He does because we are all carrying the presence? Absolutely. But do we have that kind of value for the presence of God? Do we have that kind of value for the things of God? Or do we go, no, Nate's the pastor, so he carries the presence of God for me. Well, rise up, Levite. (laughs) That's not what the Bible is saying. I carry the presence of God because, yes, I have a responsibility, but you do too. So don't you say you don't have time to worship God? Don't you say you don't have time to understand His Word? Don't you say you don't have time to gather with His people to worship? Why? Because God is saying that if you do that task, I haven't even got there yet, so I'm jumping ahead. I want to show you what happens when the Levites actually do what God is saying for them to do. And we're going to get onto that real fun, Second Chronicles 17. Now we come to a guy, his name is King Jehoshaphat. His dad was a decent king, but he had started to walk away from God. And previously in Israel, there were some of these uh, really bad idol worship that was starting to come in. And so Jehoshaphat wanted to bring a renewal of faith to the kingdom. So let's read what he did. Second Chronicles 17, 7 to 11. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, a whole bunch of guys, one that you know that Nathaniel is in there as well. And with them, the Levites, um, a whole bunch of them, and with these Levites, the priests, uh, Elishama and Jehoram, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, they went about through all the cities of Judah and taught the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon Judah. And so Judah, no, read that. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah. Not Judah, around Judah. And they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents of silver for tribute. It doesn't even say that he beat these guys in war. They just went, they've got God, let's give them money. 
And Arabians also brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. What were they for? Probably offerings to God. When the Levites understand and are tasked with their role, remember they were meant to be the judges that teach people what God's will is. And so Jehoshaphat takes that and he goes, you know what, we haven't been walking according to the law of God. You guys need to go and teach. We need our nation to be following God. When that was going out, when the culture of the kingdom was more important than anything else, and that was permeating all aspects of society, it wasn't just the nation that was blessed. The fear of the Lord actually goes beyond what we are doing and into the community. And that is why I'm getting passionate about this, and that's why I think this is a now word, because if the Levites would actually understand that you have a function and a responsibility that God has given to you. And we all start to function the way that God's called us to function. Our nation is going to be transformed from there. Let's not get caught up in how we transform the nations. Let's get caught up in whether we are following the culture of the kingdom. Obviously, the Bible tells us lots about the culture of the kingdom and, 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 and helping and serving the community, absolutely. But the focal point here for the assembly of the firstborn is to know the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, and to fear the Lord will do a whole bunch more than I can do in my own strength. And so when Christians are so caught up in social justice and saving the world, but they don't know anything about the Word of God, you're going to burn out. You're going to find resistance. You're going to find that you don't have the resources. But when we come to God and we understand this is your Lord, this is your perfect will, I'm going to live according to that, suddenly God moves in ways that are unexpected. I want to see a move of God in our town. I want to see a move of God in our nation. I'm worried and desperate for, for, for our nation that is seemingly walking more and more away from God. But rather than going to Facebook and telling people how they should think and how they should act, what happens if the church knows how we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to act because of the Word of God? What's going to happen when we do that? I want to keep going because there's more. There is more. So much more. Um, I want to camp on this one because this one has a few interesting things that God's really put on my heart. We come to 2 Chronicles 29, <clears throat> and we come to a king named Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah had just taken over as king from the worst king of, or at least one of the worst kings of uh, the empire of Judah, and his name was Ahaz. Ahaz was terrible, brought in all sorts of idol worship, even uh, uh, things like, like child sacrifice, Horrendous, horrendous stuff that was going on. Hezekiah comes in, and once again, he wants to bring uh, the people of Judah back to renewal to the kingdom of God. And so um, this is what he does. Let's read 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3 to 11. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them. Now, let me just make a quick note about this. <clears throat> I think it was this story, but why he needed to assemble the Levites and the priests is because previously in the generation where they weren't seeking God, these priests and these Levites scattered to go look after themselves. 
That's what was going on. They went back to find jobs as farmers, whatever they could. But now we have a king who is caught up, or, or not caught up, he, he, he understood the need for God to be put first. And so he gathers these priests and these Levites and he says, hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of our Lord, uh, for the Lord our, our God. They have forsaken him and turned away um, and turn away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turn their backs. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 10. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. Note this, Hezekiah didn't talk at this point about how the nation needed to change. He talked about what had happened in the past, and then he talks to the Levites and he says, remember your function, remember your responsibility, and remember your place. I think we all want to see revival happen across our nation. We want to see God move in ways that we haven't seen before in our world. But do we understand that the starting point is the people of God renewing the covenant with God? I've been thinking about this. When we talk about revival, we talk about a move of God. And the word revive often means that you are bringing life to something that is dead. The dead thing can't do anything by itself because it's dead. And so we need the life of God to come so that the dead thing can come alive. If we are the dead things and God needs to revive us, there's nothing we can do. There's no responsibility here. I'm dead, right? But I think that there's something else that God is saying to the church first. That He's not doing a revival until there's a renewal. Because the renewal is dependent on the people of God, understanding their role and their function and coming back to that place, saying, God, I am going to commit myself once again to you with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength, all of me. I'm going to commit. I'm going to make this renewal. I'm going to make this commitment. And that is what I want us to consider that God is not necessarily going to move in ways we haven't seen when we're not willing to commit to Him in a way that we know we should. I wonder whether the world out there is waiting for the church to renew its commitment to God. And it takes the people of God understanding what our role and our responsibility is. So in this story... The priests and the Levites, they do that work, they repair the temple, they, they get rid of all the filth, they reconsecrate it, they consecrate themselves. And Hezekiah actually says that this has the effect of consecrating the nation. Consecrating the place of God consecrates the nation. Let me say it again. Consecrating the place of God consecrates the nation. That is the picture in the Bible. 
Now that we've consecrated the things of God, we can consecrate the nation. It's here first, church. If worship is not taking place here, don't expect that worship is going to take place there. If, if the love for God and the commitment to Him is not happening in the church, why are we expecting it to happen outside of the church? If God is not first in the church, then why do we expect that God will be first in the nations? Maybe let's even bring this back. If God's not first in the church, why do you think He'll be first in your homes? Why do you think He'll be first in your families when in the house of God, if He's not the priority, we're getting it wrong. And so... They consecrate the temple, they consecrate themselves, it consecrates the nation, and then the nation then renews their faith, and they all gather, and that's in Second Chronicles 29, verse 31 to 34, and I'll read this to you. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. The number of burnt offerings that the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. These were for burnt offerings to the Lord, and the consecrated offerings. <clears throat> so the burnt offerings is for sin. The consecration offerings is to say, God, I'm yours. All right? Two different things. You being without sin and you being consecrated are two different things, people. Understand that. You can be without sin and still not be consecrated to God. You might understand that God has given you forgiveness, but you might not be consecrated to God. And look at the cost here. The sin offering, 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. The consecration offerings was 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. The cost of consecration is always going to be more than the forgiveness of sin. Because it's going to cost us something. I love that in the Bible we see time and time again, we see this sense of like, I'm not going to give God something that costs me nothing. I'm not going to give God an offering that costs me nothing. God loves the offering. And the picture that comes to mind is that, is that woman who came to Jesus and she poured perfume at his feet, wiped it with her tears and with her hair, wiped it with her hair and washed it with her tears. And then the disciples said, oh, what a waste that money could have gone to changing the world. And Jesus said, no, this is worship. And everywhere that my story is told, she will be remembered. Why? Because there is power and there is value in worshiping God. There's power and value in saying, God, I'm consecrating my life to you. God's not looking for mighty men and women who will go out He's looking for mighty men and women who will commit their lives to Him first. And when that happens, something happens. All right, so we see all these offerings. And then verse 34, But the priests were too few and could not flay all the burnt offerings. So unto other priests had consecrated themselves, their brothers, the Levites, helped them. So until the work was finished. For the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. The consecration of the temple went ahead. There was enough people to do that job. And then the nation started to respond. And there weren't enough Levites. There weren't enough priests. Well, there weren't enough priests. There were enough Levites. And it says, because the Levites were more upright in heart. Because the Levites were more upright in heart. What does it mean to be upright in heart? It doesn't mean to be a good moral person. 
It means to be ready for what God is going to do. It means being in tune with what God is doing. Don't try to be a good person. Try to be a good follower of Christ. Everything else will flow from that place. You want to be upright in heart, you want to be a good person, then say, God, what is it that you're doing? And when God says, get ready, who get ready? Let me say this. Our church is going into a season where we need people who know God are ready to lead, who are ready to model worship, who are ready to model prayer, who are ready to model a love for God that is all-consuming. That's not my task alone. That's not Beck's task alone. That's not five of us. That's not ten of us. That's all of us are needed for what God is going to do next. I, I feel like God's are saying, let's get ready. There's a revival that can happen when there's a renewal that's happening. But are we willing to be renewed to the things of God? Are we willing to commit ourselves and to consecrate? The word consecrate means to be set apart for God. Say, God, you first. The Levites are more upright in heart because they started the renewal. When you read on in 2 Chronicles 29 and so forth, we see that when this assembly came and all these offerings were taking place, a joy swept through the nation. This is another reason why I think this is a now word for our nation. Our nation is not well. It's not well. Joy has been sucked out. People are finding happiness by avoiding problems. There isn't strength in our nation. And I believe that God wants to restore, restore joy. What, is, what kind of joy? I believe it's the joy of His salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. How does the joy of salvation come about? I believe when there's a renewal of the Levites saying, yes, God, I want to prepare to carry your presence where I go, so much so that people go, I want that. I need that. I need that joy. I need that peace. I need that life. Christian, it's time for us to wake up and it's time for us to stop going, I'm not, I'm not well enough. I don't have enough. No, no, get yourself ready. Just say, God, I give you everything. Let's start to put God first and we will start to see things happen from there. I want to read one more passage and then we're going to finish there. Second Chronicles 30 verse 15. So what happens here, Hezekiah continues this renewal work and the people, they had assembled, um, they, they, they worshipped, it was great. And then Hezekiah goes, you know what? We haven't celebrated the Passover. The Passover was the whole thing that we started off with. That was the Passover sequence that brought people out of slavery. So now they're saying we are now going to fully be God's people. That's what they're celebrating. We are the people that God has rescued. We are the people of God's salvation. And the Passover was meant to be celebrated as an assembly. And so Hezekiah gets them together again, 2 Chronicles 30 verse 15. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb. And on the 14th day 
of the second month, and the priest and the Levites were ashamed. So that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. What's going on here? They had seen a renewal. They had seen a revival. One month later, they went, I don't think people are going to come back. I don't think so. And so they didn't get ready for this next thing that God was doing. The people came. And when they saw the crowds and the work that was needing to be done, they went, I should have been ready. I should have been ready. I should be ready. God's called me into that position, and I wasn't ready. And so they were ashamed, but here's the good news. That's not the thing that was dwelt upon. What was dwelt upon was the fact that right after they felt ashamed, what did they do? They got ready. They got ready, and they started to serve. You read the rest of 2 Chronicles 30, it's a beautiful story. Hezekiah begins to then also encourage the Levites as they got themselves ready and they fulfilled their job because they were fulfilling their jobs well. What am I trying to say here? I think that we've got to stop allowing disappointment to dictate whether we are ready for what God wants to do. For so long, the Levites, they were having to make do by themselves because the house of God had been shut down. Now that the house of God was open, perhaps some of them thought, I don't know if this is going to last. It's great that we had that month of celebration, but we don't know if that's going to carry on. So I'm going to sit back and wait till God moves before I commit fully to Him. What is that for you? What is that I'll commit to God when story that you've got in your mind? I'll commit to God when all my hurts and pains are gone. I'll commit to God when I'm no longer disappointed. I'll commit to God when that person says sorry. I'll commit to God when my bank account is settled and secure. I'll commit to God when I'm no longer struggling with sin. I'll commit to God when He's given me a spouse. I'll commit to God when He's healed me of this disease. I'll commit to God, no, now. Now. I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to wait till God is doing something and then try to catch up with what God is wanting to do. I want to be one of those on the forefront because this is a word for us now. If we get ourselves ready, if we prepare ourselves, if we consecrate ourselves, if we say, God, I put you first, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Let's not wait for the other things to come before I say, God, you first. My disappointments can rob me, but I'm not going to let it to this time round. 
My past experiences can dictate to me certain fears and anxieties, but you know what? I know that my God is steadfast and secure, and I'm going to commit my life to Him. Come on, assembly of the firstborn. Come on, assembly of the firstborn. We get to carry God's presence. Not have to. Has that crept into your heart? Oh, I have to carry God for all these people. Why can't they do it themselves? When has carrying God's presence been a burden? When has it ever been a burden for us to know that God decides to reside with me and to use me? Where His Spirit is, there is freedom. There's joy, there's hope. So church, how are we going to respond this morning? If I can get the band up. I just sense that this morning is not really a, a time for praying over people. Still happy to do that. We're always happy to be praying over people and to be praying with you. But I sense perhaps God put this word on my heart like King Hezekiah. Let's come back to God. Let's get ready. Because God's going to do something in our nation. And we get to be a part of it. But are you going to consecrate yourself? Are you going to say, God first, everything else can wait? The consecration process for Levites and priests wasn't easy. It took a week. And they would have to keep themselves from all sorts of situations. You know, it's kind of crazy that when a priest consecrated himself, that even if a close loved one dies, the priest wasn't allowed to mourn. Wasn't allowed to. Why? Because they're showing that their priority in their life is not superseded by anything or anyone. No. I'm not saying that in you consecrating God that you can't mourn the death of a loved one if that's what is going on. But what I'm trying to show you here is that the Bible has shown us this is our birthright. We get to carry God's presence. We get to carry His Spirit. We get to carry His power. We get to carry His authority. We get to carry His love. We get to carry His hope. We get to carry this wholeness that He wants to place in our life. So are you ready? Are you ready? Will you get yourself ready? Will you say, God, I want to put you first? And all these other things will come in alignment once I know where you are going and what you are saying first. Why don't we stand? The band's going to lead us in this song. And let's just have this moment of singing to God. If you are saying, yes, God, I want to be ready, make these words your prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.